Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. In this episode, we'll explain why it's so important for you as fabulous people to be daring, whichever career stage you're in. We'll invite you to do the play safe, be daring challenge. Do it with your family, do it with your friends and see if they agree. And lastly, both Vicky and I will share a personal story of being daring and how we overcame them. Welcome to the second edition of uh, Be Fabulous. Uh, we're, so, we're so happy that we managed to figure out how to get uh, published online and ready to go. Uh, we got approved from Google and Apple and Spotify and everyone else. And, and here we are doing our second uh, episode. It's quite exciting, right, Vicky? What a week. <laughs> it's freaking awesome, Vips. Who would have thought that we could pull this thing off as an experiment? I'm so proud of us. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's very interesting in terms of the people, a few people that I've sent the feed to already. Um, people really feel it's different and um, kind of wanting to know where we're going to take it. So I guess, uh, I guess today what we're going to do is um, take us one step further and uh, we're going to introduce the idea of the four Ds, which we kind of alluded to in the last podcast, but we never quite got to. But I'm figuring because many of you will be listening to this for the first time and may not have heard last week's podcast. Vicky, why don't you do the, uh, why don't you do the uh, pre-credits role where you... Uh, you bring us up to speed on kind of everything that we did in 60 seconds. Go for it. Ah, 60 seconds. Oops, there's a good challenge. Uh, so we dug deep into what do we mean by fabulous. So it's not just sparkly and, and lovely on the surface. It goes pretty deep. Uh, and underneath those uh, fabulous criteria are four non-negotiables. So we talked about what it means to be a great communicator, to be a great storyteller. Secondly to have energy and desire to succeed, the grit and hustle. Thirdly, an inside-out mentality where you are willing to look inwards and take responsibility for your actions and not blame others. And actually, I forgot to mention on the first podcast, there's a great book called Insight by Tasha Urick. Highly recommended if you want a greater depth on the research why humans are so unself-aware. And then the fourth one is your values are aligned to the environment you find yourself in. And so we dug deep into those four. So if you're interested in any of those, go and listen to our episode one. And we'll go deep into what does fabulous really mean in terms of constantly rewiring yourself so you have a greater impact on the world in a sustainable way. Yeah, that's, that's, that's brilliant. What a summary, Vicky. I don't think I could have done that that well. And you did it in less than 60 seconds. It took about 45. So I was very impressed. Um, <laughs> I'm always up for the challenges. Yeah, yeah no, and you always win uh, when challenged. That's something I've learned from you after working with you for 20 years. Um, now, what I'll add, uh, just one thing I'd like to add to that, uh, what Vicky said is, you know, we're not, we're not you know, being fabulous also, it's, it's kind of like the, in some respects, the best of the best. It's, it's the SAS of leadership. It's not easy, though, to constantly rewire yourself at different stages of your career. Perhaps you're, you know, perhaps you're, you know, um, I'm going to age myself now, but perhaps you're, you're young and in your sort of mid, mid to late 20s and, and you're really trying to build a career and forge um, what I call the superstar performer years where you're, where you're mastering your craft. Or, or maybe you're in that, um, you know, what we call that awesome manager phase of life 
where um, you know, tend to have responsibilities that involve uh, managing and leading others, perhaps for the first time. And, and that's kind of quite tricky because um, particularly if you were really good at whatever it was you did before, then becoming a manager can be really quite tricky because you, you feel like you're not as deep into your core expertise as maybe you used to be. And then you've got, you know, the executive journey, which is a lot of our clients, Vicky, and that's a, and that's, that's a whole different world of pain because um, uh, you realize that you're not very good at anything that you used to be good at 10 years ago. And at the same time, you're, you're pretty removed. You're one, two, three steps removed from a lot of the people doing a lot of the work. And so your life tends to revolve around spreadsheets and, and numbers and PowerPoints or, or, or whatever we're using for slideware these days and, and endless meetings. And it can be quite soul-destroying unless you have a sense of direction and purpose anchored to that. And, um, and then, of course, the, you know, the fabulous leader is uh, you take that one step further and it really forces us to ask, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing now, but I imagine there's probably 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 executives in the U.S., alone, let alone the world. And then you say to yourself, well, how many of those would you actually follow? And that number drops very, very, very quickly to the low hundreds. And, uh, you know, those people have something else about them. And, uh, and, you know, the reason why being fabulous is so important is because fabulous is what allows people, it's the qualities and the attitudes and the actions and the behaviors that allow you to constantly rewire through those different stages of your career in your life, so as to be able to do that second hop, third hop, fourth hop. And in addition to not only being successful, having great relationships and making tons of money, um, you also actually get, con you feel contented and happiness if you're doing it well as well. So, you know, you know being fabulous is kind of like the journey of life. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the search for the Holy Grail. Uh, I was watching Indiana Jones yesterday and uh, I just thought it was worth saying that. Yeah, Vips, you're reminding me of uh, an executive I worked with um, for a long period of time, and I was sitting very near his office, and every day I'd ask him, how was your day, zero to ten, and without fail, it was a two or a three out of ten, and I'm like, man, you are in the wrong job, buddy, <laughs> but really what it was is exactly what you described. He's so far away removed from what he really enjoyed doing, and his life is about the C-suite agenda, so... Uh, what does finance need? What does the people department need? What does legal need? He was in IT. And there's no right or wrong, but it's balancing those different agendas. There's only so much money. And as you get more senior, your world becomes about those competing agendas and being able to balance and navigate so you've got the right resources to do what you need to do without causing pain to the other areas who need those same resources. And um, it means that you're just so miserable, and I've seen it time and again. You know, you're just so far removed from the thing you actually enjoy doing that it starts to suck your soul. And at what cost, Vibs? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, this journey to being a fabulous leader. I mean, I think the reason, you know, perhaps the reason why we don't have so many fabulous leaders is so damn hard. And the ones that have the ability and the aptitude to do it may just decide, you know what, screw this, it's too hard. I'm not going to bother. And I, and I think that's a very real thing that we face. And, you and know, that's okay. That's that, is, great that is okay. That. that is okay, yeah. so long as everyone isn't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we have nobody to follow, Vips. Well, then we have then we have numpties to follow, and uh, the less said about that, oh, the better. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for those of our um, American listeners, numpties is a beautiful British word, and um, it's a little bit like a jackass, but it's more endearing. <laughs> so if you yeah. if you want a word that describes 
somebody who um, isn't as inspiring, uh, a number T, N-U-M-P-T-Y is a good one. Mm. Uh, yes, thank you for calling me out on that, Vicky. Um, yeah, so what we did was, so, I mean, so the reason behind all of this is to give you an insight that actually being fabulous is almost a way of being as opposed to a set of things to do. And so that's why those four, four non-negotiables we talked about last time is so important because what we've found is those are so, so core to your core belief set that you have. They kind of, from a, if you think of it from a wiring point of view, they're so deep that if you rewire those, the rewiring of those can take decades. To have you believe something different if you don't believe that great communication is important, if you don't believe that having an inside-out mentality is a good thing, if you don't have a set of value and ethics and code that you live behind and operate in an environment that you're in, then, then and quite frankly, have the grit and hustle to, to want to, to be resilient enough and persistent enough and convicted enough to keep rewiring and keep learning, you're basically never going to get through these career inflection points and ultimately you'll, you'll kind of stagnate um, and you might be happy stagnate, stagnating if that's by choice, but um, more often than not, uh, it results in, in this wonderful phrase that I use called title inflation, where you end up with a bunch of people who are way more senior than the, sorry, who are, who are way more junior than their titles suggest, and you only have to spend five minutes with them in a meeting or a Zoom call to realize that. But but you know they think they're God's gift to the earth because they've got an EVP title, and this kind of thing we see every day. And that's, uh, that's where we get that imposter syndrome, Vips, because deep down they know it to their core and they're always worried about being caught out. And um, it's a very, very, very real issue. And it's one of those things that might be okay in the short term, but it always, always comes out in the wash. There might be a restructure, some sort of rift, some, some type of event that you couldn't predict. And they always go, why me? But actually if they dug deep, they know why. They know why. They just don't want to acknowledge it. I think also, I mean, you bring up a really interesting point, which is in the era of dig digital reputation management, this stuff, it might take you four or five hops before employers realize you, you aren't really as good as your salary suggests. Whereas now, that's gonna be, that is becoming identifiable after the first hop or even the second hop. You know, it, it's it's, um, it's one, of, one of the ways that uh, such a connected world you know, on the one hand, it creates a lot of goodness. On the other hand, if you're not very fabulous, it allows you to get found out very quickly as well. So, um, you know, it's, we've got to keep that in mind as we, um, you know, as we embrace new technology. You know, there's always, there's always an upside if you look hard enough, and there's always some hidden kryptonite not lurking under, underneath as well. So, um, yeah. So that's a super quick summary of where we went uh, uh, last time. But today, what I want to bring up, Vicky, and have us talk through is the four Ds. So, the, the, can you, did I ever share with you the history of the 4Ds? I can't remember if I ever shared that with you. Well, I know our listeners would be fascinated. I can't remember either. You can't so remember it. it. Okay. So, do you, <laughs> so remember in, in that period when I was like um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with ThinkShift and this idea of rewiring the brain became, became that, that's the right way to look at it, I, I felt, because it was, it was, it, it, was a, it was a differentiated way, but it also allowed us to tap into um, techniques and tools without it turning into a very psychology-centric thing or without it turning into a, I'm just an old person trying to tell you what I, would, what I did when I was your age kind of thing. And it gave a way, a rubric, a safe way to um, ask people to revisit and reevaluate what they believed, which ultimately drove 
their behaviors and actions, which ultimately drove different set of results, which is what we want from people. We want people to accelerate and go through those, you know, career inflection points, which we, 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 um, we, we call circles of suck in think shift language and to get through those and uh, accelerate out of them. So what happened was ultimately that together with, with just what it means to be in a much faster moving world, whether it's faster up, faster down, faster sideways, means that as a macro theme, what's a lot more important is how quickly we can learn new things, adapt and apply them rather than the traditional view of looking at knowledge and expertise and value as how many years of experience, expertise do I have in something. So I may have 25 years of expertise in technology architecture. Wonderful, okay? But I may be totally hopeless at adapting that 25 years of experience to whatever new tools and techniques are out there in the world of AI, for example. And, and if, you're, if you're slow to adapt, that's ultimately going to constrain your ability to be successful and grow more than the value of the latent knowledge and content expertise that you picked up along the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's tied to the concept we talked about a little bit in the last call around fixed mindset versus the growth mindset by Carol Dweck, because especially for folks in professions like uh, technology or R&D or science or biotech, uh, there's a great pride, academics, there's a great pride that comes from your content knowledge and what you know, and a great arrogance that comes from that as well. And so to be open, to look at things from another's perspective and allow somebody else to know the answer rather than you, feels like it's a sign of weakness because you've always been validated based on how much you know and can you figure it out quite quicker than anyone else. I was having a, a call with a client yesterday on this very topic where he's like, Vicky, I've, I've, been, I've been acknowledged my whole life and cherished and celebrated for being the person who can figure it out the quickest and know the most. So I'm an arrogant asshole. You know, I know that. <laughs> I was very self-aware. <laughs> well, that's, he, he's probably 90% further than most of the people <laughs> that we come across. Right. And that's the trick. It's, it's, it's knowing that th that serves you at one part of your career. But as you go up and you start to find more of your purpose in life uh, and to be truly effective and lift everyone else up, it's not about what you know. It's about helping others be really successful. Yeah. So bring in that, bring in that sort of full circle. So what, what happened was um, I, I realized that actually um, there are certain characteristics, call them traits. So if you think of leadership theory, it went through different epochs. And one of those epochs it went through was, was like trait theory. Trait theory is kind of, broadly speaking, 1900s to sort of 1940s. Okay? And to be honest, it shocks me how many companies and organizations to this day focus on traits as a way of thinking about leadership, but whatever, we won't go into that right now. That's a, that's a future episode all by itself. But, but, but there was a place for trait theory. There are certain types of traits or characteristics that people have, or some people have, that make them, that collectively make them more likely to embrace adaptability rather than hold on to the past, if you will. That strikes the right balance. And um, the way this came about was, the, the seminal work on trait theory was done. So, Vicky, I'm going to do a book now. See? Oh. There you go. You haven't seen me goodness. do that before. Yeah, see? <laughs> I'm, I'm learning from you. See, you only took, 
I only took your birthday. Happy birthday, by the way. I only took your birthday to get me to that Thank point. Thank you, my friend. Um, Thank you. But yes, the book, you know, but now I'm going to tell you, I can't remember the name of the book, but I can tell you who the authors were. It's Kuzi and Posner. Uh, that's K-O-U-S-E-Y and Posner. And they did like the seminal work on leadership trait theory. And you know, just quick Google, you'll find the books and the papers. But essentially they, they, they had, uh, you know, over a hundred different traits and they, they, um, they surveyed you know, many hundred leaders to work out what traits were considered most important. Now, from now that, that's kind of less important from our standpoint, but what it did do was it gave us a good taxonomy to look at leadership traits, so that was like a listing, if you like. And so from there, we developed, well, what are the, what are the ones that are most associated with the, with the willingness and the ability to adapt, to learn new things and apply them quickly? And that is ultimately how we ended up with elevating the four Ds to being the most important ones from the perspective of having mobility through those career stages, the superstar performer towards the manager, the top-notch executive, while at the same time sort of going that orthogonal direction towards being a fabulous leader. And that's probably enough said about four Ds, which probably tell, tell people what they are. Um, well, well Vips, the, the book you're thinking of is The Leadership Challenge. That's right. Kuzis and Posner with the 10 primary leadership traits. Yeah, you know what I've learned, Vicky, is being dyslexic, I don't remember things like names of books, right? I got you, my friend. But I remember, I remember concepts. I can remember <laughs> concepts. I can remember more concepts than anyone else. But if you ask me to remember the name of a book or an author, it's like, oh dear, <laughs> it's all over. <laughs> I got your back for that one, my friend. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for doing that. So, Vicky, why don't you, why don't you do the first D? Um, and then maybe we'll take all it in right. turns. So the first uh, D, as we think about these, these different traits, is to, to be daring. So when we think about daring, this is a very interesting period we're living in when we're thinking about the, the courage it needs to be daring. Many people feel, when they feel fear, that the thing they don't want to do is be daring. They want to play small, they don't want to play to win, they don't want to take risks and chances, it's all about being safe. And actually that's the wrong posture for most situations. Now Vips will talk about a, <clears throat> a range of different um, elements of daring and when to be very, very daring versus just a little bit daring. There's definitely the right scenario to place daring within. But whenever you are thinking about what needs to get done, the most important thing is to think about action creates its own magic and taking that first step is what's really important. Many people ask me, how do you get more confidence? How do you build confidence? I feel so unconfident. Well, the interesting thing about confidence, it's simply a result. What's needed is courage. What's needed is those first few steps. Because if we don't, if we don't take the steps, we're not going anywhere. So the goal is to feel the fear and do it anyway, because our brain's job is to keep us safe and to keep us idle so that we can maintain the status quo. So anything else feels edgy and difficult. So the key with be daring is just to recognize how scary it is. And it goes back 50,000 years when we used to live in tribes. If we, if we did something scary, if we could get kicked out of the tribe. So the goal here is to show up. So Vips talks to us about what does be daring mean as a leader and as a superstar performer and a manager. And what's the right context to be thinking about that yeah. in the environment we're living in right now? Yeah. And, and that, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great call out. And the way I like to think about it is if you take that phrase, be daring, you know, what constitutes a safe level of daring 
if you're one year out of college in a new job looks very, very different than if you're Jeff Bezos, right? That's a whole, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a different world. It's a different thing. So the kinds of things that I think about from a daring point of view that I think in that superstar performer journey, and broadly speaking, that's your first, whatever, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years of your career, okay? Um, your professional career. And it's, it's, to me, what daring looks like is never doing only what's asked of you. Like always being prepared to ask the why and then going one or two steps beyond whatever is being asked of you. So yeah, I see this all the time. Like, you know, I've got a couple, um, when I work with some of the younger folks in shift ups, um, you know, you, you, they're brilliant. They're, they're like sponges and they want to learn and they want to, they just want to do, right? They want to get straight to the action and doing. And, and what happens is um, they, 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 it's easy to craft the landscape of what constitutes your job and the task that your manager has given you or your boss has given you or the, or the scope of the process that you're responsible for. And, and it's, it's like, well, I won't step beyond that because if, if I step beyond that, someone's going to tell me I did something wrong or what if something goes wrong that I didn't understand or what if my head gets blown off? What if, I, what if it gets held against me in a review? What if, what if I don't get my pay rise and I'm living in New York and it's so bloody expensive? You know, this kind of stuff, right? So being daring there, it's very small. It's just being, being prepared to ask the question, can you explain why we're doing that so I can learn from it and then I can give you more of what you need as well as what you've asked for? So and what, 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 what um, employers tend to look at that with or good managers tend to look at that with is they experience that as proactivity. They don't experience yeah. that as, as people who do what they're told. They can be great and they can be low maintenance, but they're, they, they, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's the difference. So, you know, I wanted to use it with a very small example like that. You know, being daring doesn't, doesn't mean, you know, put all your money in a venture and pray that it matures in five years. That's, that's not what I'm saying. It's very, very small micro behaviors. Uh, what about um, if you get asked into, if you get asked to, managers, young managers often have this, they get pulled into meetings that are higher level, maybe with more senior people, and... They feel, they're too, they feel uncomfortable speaking up because if they speak up and they say something wrong, they're worried they're going to look bad, for example. Okay? So being daring in that context is where if you're invited to a meeting, then you, you, you should be thinking in your head that I have an obligation to contribute something valuable to this meeting. Otherwise, all I'm teaching the environment is they shouldn't have invited me all along. Okay, which is the opposite of what you want, which is you want to be seen at that table. You want to be involved in those conversations. You want to be, you know, you know I, I hate the phrase, but you want to be more strategic. Okay, but then you put people in places where they can be strategic and they recoil because it's too scary. And well, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, that's not for me to say. I'm not sure what my, my boss would say. Maybe my, my, boss, my boss might not agree. Uh, what if the CEO shoots me down? That kind of stuff. And so to me, daring. You know, that, that's, that's kind of what it looks like more at the more uh, the, sort of the, the superstar performer also manager level. I think at executive level, in my opinion, this gets, uh, I think we see more pain with the be daring issue for executives than anywhere else, particularly if you're executives that haven't quite made the C-suite. So you're that, you're that bubbling under crowd, right? You know, you've invested 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 years, right? Working to the point where you're, you know, you're an SVP, you're an EVP, but you're not, you're not quite in that inner circle of the, you know, top three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people who really are like the pinnacle from the perspective of the environment you're in, okay? You're just bubbling under. 
But now you've also got eight, 10, 12 years of, of investment, if you like, in that journey so far. So psychologically, you actually stop being daring because you're too scared to screw up your 12 years journey. Okay? And it's actually when you need the leadership most. It, it's when you need, and, 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 and it, but, but it, it doesn't happen because the, the perception of risk and failure, the challenge of that is so much um, uh, uh, harder at, the, at, that, at that executive level and because quite frankly, those people have more to lose. They're, they've, got, they've got nice paychecks, they've got you know, often great bonuses, they have nice big houses and multiple cars and kids in private school and blah, 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 blah. And so it, it feels like you've got too much to lose if you're, if you're sitting on guaranteed, safe, secure income for that. So what you actually end up with is, is what I call the non-leader executive. And I put a lot of that down to this, this concept of being daring. So, um, and then you get you know, true business leaders who are thinking about being daring through the lens of, let me not just look at the, the, you know, the financial side, the investment case, the business justification has to make sense, but also, but also am, I, am I daring enough to stand up for what I believe to be right? Is, is, that, is that the world I do want? Is that the right decision for us to be making as an organization or an entity or a, or a nonprofit or a, or a government department? I mean, at some point, all of these things turn into value judgments. And it, it's become fashionable in the last four or five years to hide behind data. The data's telling us X, the data's telling us Y. It's kind of proxy for, I'm, I don't want to really risk my opinion here, so the data is telling us X, because someone else is going to find some other data that says Y, where X and Y are, y are kind of competing. So, you know, being daring shows up in all sorts of forms, and, and from a trade point of view, some people are energized by that. It, it feels like, well, you know, what's life if you don't take a few risks? What's life if you don't try? And that, that keeps you at something called the learning edge. And if you stay at the learning edge, your brain doesn't get soft. If your brain doesn't get soft, you're way more likely to rewire. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is they say that you only grow old when you stop growing. And so that continual desire to learn and be at that edge, um, they, 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 they say as we're growing older, the number one thing to do is to do something uncomfortable for yourself every single day. So it could be even brushing your teeth with the other hand. You know, that could be your small way of being daring, no matter where you are in life. It doesn't have to be some big, bold move. But whatever feels edgy for you could be the smallest thing in the world. But if it feels edgy and it puts you at that edge, go for it, because that's what keeps you alive. That's what keeps you young. And that what, that's what keeps your brain on point. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting, like, you know, from a, from a, sort, of a sort of a neuroscience, brain science basis, it, we know that actually... A lot of these things are doable a lot later on in life than, than was previously thought you could do, right? The, the level of neuroplasticity is higher than, you, than we thought it was. The problem is, it's this accumulated experience debt problem that I talked about. So if you imagine your entire belief system, you know, it starts out with zero, right? I, mean, I, think, you, I think you said last time that, you know, who the hell decided what your name was? That someone gave it to you, right? You, you absorbed yeah. it when you were really, really young. So, so think of that as the roots, the foundations of, your, of, the, of the tree of your belief system. And then that, that grew and it became, you know, it became a twig with a few branches and, and then it grew, a sapling, and then it grew and it became a big giant oak tree. So by the time you're in your 40s or your 50s, right, this thing is well-rooted. It's been there for 40, 50 years. And if you start 
if you start rewiring even the smallest things, it, it, it can be analogous to having to go quite deep down that branch tree, down to something that's really, really important to you. And um, you don't, it's, it's so, so the reason why it's harder is because the process of rewiring a habit is going to make you go back and revisit a lot more of your beliefs than you would have had to do otherwise. And that's why this idea of be daring is a, is a good trait because if you, if you don't really have that, then, or you don't, you don't um, uh, do the deliberate practice to, to build that muscle of being daring, then ultimately it's gonna be very, very difficult for you to keep adapting, particularly as you get further and further on in your career. And the irony is where we want the greatest amount of fabulousness and adaptability is actually at the most senior levels. And that's the, that's the paradox. So we want our most senior people to be the most agile of mind, but for them, it's gonna be the hardest. It's gonna be much easier for the younger folks, but the younger folks are like, uh, well, this is easy, no one listens to me. You know, um, lower down that career structure, the, the willingness to be daring is so much stronger, but it kind of feels like it gets suppressed by, by the experiences from people more senior or those with more positional power, right? And then from the top, it's like, but, but you, you, hold on, hold on, I'm trying to protect you here. You're going too fast, too quickly. You're about to crash and burn and you have this kind of issue. Um, and I, I think being daring is a really good proxy for organizations and individuals to think about, oh, do we have the right level of daringness going on over a month, over a quarter, over a year? Without that, you really have no innovation. Yeah, and then you layer on the environment you're in right now. So with COVID, it's going to require a very different set of daring based on the consequences and where you would be normally. Yes, yes. Last point before we go on to being deliberate, Vips. Uh, the other thing is, as you get more senior, you have way more to lose. You've got more money, you've got a title, you've got bigger expenses. So that need to be daring is tampered by your need to feel safe. And so even though you know it's the right thing to do to have the difficult conversations and put your point of view across, you're less likely to do that because you are worried about what you have to lose. So you want to feel like, again, you're part of that yeah. tribe, 50,000 yeah. years, so that you, you've been taken yeah. care of. You've got too much to yeah. lose. Yeah, you see, we see it all the time. I tell you what, you, the other one, the other version of that that you sometimes see is people go the other way and they're not scared of anything anymore, right? And so then they're like, I can't possibly lose. Like everything I touch turns to gold, okay? And what then happens is you get this, this, uh, I don't know, this slightly intoxicating craziness. Like you have the narcissistic kind of personality develops at that point because their experience has told them that whatever they've done works, right? One might argue you see that, you, you see bits of that with Elon Musk these days, right? You see bits of that with Jeff Bezos these days. You saw bits of that with, you know, Steve Jobs when he was still around. You know, they, they, in some ways it's intoxicating because it's like, because they've, you know, they're, well, they're unstoppable. unstoppable right? but, but they are stoppable. Yeah. I mean, in the end, in, in the end, history tells us that, that, I mean, all of these folks get old and die. I mean, at simplest terms, right? Um, and, and so, you know, what happens though is I, th I think the, the, the way, the way, the way business and capitalism works, capital tends to flow to people who have done it once, right? So, so that what, what happens is um, it, it becomes 10 times easier to do it after the first time because, 
because it's, it's like it's like external economies of scale start working for you, and and access to capital is not a, not a problem. I was speaking to someone, in fact, someone you know, Izzy, yesterday, and and she's got a great idea. She can make millions off that idea, but she's gonna she's she's hit a capital crunch, yeah, and and she's gonna learn how to do that, and we're gonna help her through that. But but the reality is that. Um, it's really, really difficult to do it the first time round. Like, let's say, let's say, let's say she makes that work, and it becomes a twenty million dollar business, fifty million dollar business, hundred million dollar business, billion dollar business, right? If she then did a second brand, it's gonna be it won't, she won't have to work half as hard. It'll be instant, right? And and, and it's kind of this, you know, this it promotes this kind of inequality. It propagates inequality, really, and um, and so that to me, it's, I'm very interested in the people who break through the first time, maybe because I broke through the first time. I think you broke through the first time. Um, but I also think that's how we, yeah. I think that's also how we level the playing field in, a, in the right way, if you like. And it's one of those things that Jim, my husband, tells me all the time. He said, it's so interesting what you do for a living because you fundamentally hate change. And I do. And yet I have so much change in my life and I create so much change. Uh, but it creates a huge dissonance in me. And I think as humans, we all hate change. But it's whether you'll take that first step and keep moving forward. And when I look at the, the two times I've reinvented myself in different countries, like you have two vips, it's hard. It's scary. But I look back and I would never have done it any other way. And it's the dark side. I did a master's in positive psychology. And it's the dark side of positive psychology that's so interesting, where all the growth happens. Because... When you go into those dark moments, that's when growth happens. I look at all the dark periods of my life and it's taught me that that is when I've grown the most. And it got me to a place where I'm no longer scared of living. I'm no longer scared of the uncertainty and the darkness because I know humans are designed for discomfort. We can get through hardships. We've all lived through them. And if we will just sit in with that discomfort and breathe into it, it'll pass. And we'll come out the other side with lessons that we've needed to learn and a little bit of our ego yeah. <laughs> that was damaged yeah. along the way. We'll shed a little bit more of that and we'll come back into who are we? And this design for us in the universe, which is so good. Vips. Which is why, though, what's interesting about what you just said is, and that becomes the narrative of basically every leadership problem from executive onwards. Right? But it, but it, that doesn't resonate in the newbie, superstar, performer, awesome manager phase, right? Because if you think about it, even us, we, you know, we've had the um, fortune or misfortune of being twenty-one at least twenty-one times, and and, and what? <laughs> <laughs> you more than that, but yeah, we'll, we'll stick with that number. <laughs> so one of my uh, clients told me having listened to the first call, and that when I turned forty, I decided I wouldn't be around people or organizations or clients or places that weren't fabulous. He's like, oh, you're 40. And I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was a little while ago. So <laughs> we are we're definitely letting out some secrets here. Yeah, but, you know, it, but it's, it's really interesting. Like, so, you know, if, you, if you're trying to crush it at the beginning of your career, you're in that superstar performer, you're mastering your craft, you think the sunshine's out your backside because you know how to write TensorFlow, right? I mean, like... They don't give a shit about slowing down and breathing. That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not, you, you haven't had the benefit of seeing the patterns throughout all of those challenges and all of those stress points and all of those life change points and all of those, you know, stupid managers, good managers. And quite frankly, 
just enough time to having seen it. You know what? It worked out all right. It didn't. It, it didn't go catastrophic. Like, yeah. like you know, you said you moved. Yeah. We moved uh, countries a couple of times, and and it, yeah, you're right. It was scary. It was hard. It was not the most pleasant thing at the point at which you're going through it. But you also learn. I mean, you also condition your mind to think. Yeah, but it seems to turn out okay, right? So when, when you when you start seeing that the little things that seem so big when you're earlier on in your career, when you start seeing that they, they just seem to solve themselves. Like, you know, somebody doesn't go live, well, guess what? It seems to solve itself. If if someone gets fired, you know, they seem to find another job and everything's okay. And it was probably a better one than they had in the first place. You know, you, you just have, you've accumulated those firsthand. And I think that's, um, it's, it's a really interesting contrast point, I think, that happens somewhere between that awesome manager, top-notch exec phase, and um, and it's uh... well. It's also why people, when they get into their mid fifties and sixties and seventies, are the happiest they've ever been because or the grumpiest they've ever been. As you described. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Some of those, but on average, the research shows that you know most are the happiest they'll have been in their lives because they're kind of settled into the patterns of what are and they know what they can get through and what will happen and they can they can rationalize that they've lived through enough. We should move on to being de deliberate. Go ahead, summarize be deliberate for us. Well, you know what I think we should do, Vips, because we spend quite a lot of time on being daring and I think each of these are so powerful. Why don't we set the scene for being deliberate and then we will let our audience hang on the edge to learn more about what is be deliberate. And we'll cover that in episode three. All right, I'll tell you what, I'll go one better on you, okay? So if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna play that game, if we're gonna play that game, then why don't we ask, why don't we ask our audience to tell us whether which one of the four Ds they'd like us to do next. So today, okay. so today we've done be daring. We've gone, we've gone reasonably deep in be daring. We set it up. Um, you know, we could probably do one, maybe two in the next session, okay? So, so just to give everyone Tell everyone what the four Ds are, because we haven't actually done that yet. I think we only shared the first one. So the four Ds are be daring. The second one is be deliberate. The third one is be dynamic. And the fourth one is seek discovery. So I wonder what, uh, what tweaked everyone's interest there. And um, if we don't hear from anyone, um, we will go with be deliberate next time round as our audience is still building. But I know for a fact that the ThinkShift Fab crowd and the Fabulous Person People Slack group will no doubt create some suggestions for us. So how's that sound? I think that sounds great. And for those of you that don't know how to get in touch with us, given this is a podcast, you can find us on uh, LinkedIn. You can look at our website, uh, info at thinkshift.com. It's with a cube. Uh, and we'll go from there and we'll see what you guys want to hear. I'm guessing they're going to want to know more about being deliberate. Vips. That that sounds very challenging in the times we're in right now. Yeah, I think I think that yes, but then I don't know. Seeking discovery in the times we're in right now is also pretty challenging. I think I think that's just the times we're in right now are pretty challenging. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So closing thoughts, Vicky. Yeah. So yeah, so when we think about be daring, go back to what are the smallest steps you can take right now to keep moving forward. How do you create that action? that creates its own magic? What does that look like for you? And how do you make sure that even if you're terrified, you're willing to feel the fear and do it anyway, and know that it's gonna turn out okay in the end, no matter what way it goes, even if initially it's not so great. Two or three steps down the line, it tends to always work out. 
What about you, Vince? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that everyone does a sort of a five to ten minute introspection exercise. Okay? And what I would say is take, take a sheet of paper and sort of create two columns. Okay? And put at the top of it, be daring. Okay? And then in sort of, take, take five minutes on each side of the page. And the left side should be labeled, where am I daring today? Okay, where am I, where do I always, and the second side, on the right-hand side, it's where do I always play it safe? Okay, and what you want to do is you want to brainstorm as many as you possibly can. You know, I'm imagining you'd have 10, 15, 20 things on either side of this piece of paper. Just whatever comes into your mind, just write it down. It's, this, is not, this is not about being perfect. It's just about allowing your, 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 your inner voice to talk to you. And... And then ask yourself, after you look at that sheet of paper, saying, how would my life change if those things that I'm scared of on the right-hand side, if I could move them into things that I'm more daring about on the left? I think, I think you will find that the person that is not being inhibited by the fears you have on the right-hand side is your version of your happiest self or at least a part of one version of your happier self. That is a wonderful exercise, guys. I highly recommend you do that. And Lipset reminds me of often where we feel fear in our brain is also the place, same place where excitement is generated. So if you imagine going down a roller coaster, I had this experience once in the Bahamas where we were waiting for what felt like 45 minutes to go up this water slide <laughs> and uh, at the Atlantis. And we got to the top, but if was taking such a long time. I was with Jim and my uh, my nephew, and I turned to both of them and I said, "If I never see you again, it's been wonderful." <laughs> I was that scared because I'd worked up this fear in my mind, and then we took off, and it was the most thrilling ride. And we got to the bottom, and I was like, "Again," and so know that the thing that scares you is typically the thing deep down you know you need to do, you really, really want to do. So take that step and do it anyway. I think, I think it's only Feel fair. Anyway. I think it's only fair that we both share one thing that petrified us that we've got over professionally. Does that professionally. count? Professionally. I mean, that, <laughs> I, I mean that's got, maybe we, okay. Well, I, I, okay, I'll do okay. it professionally. Right. Yeah. Go on then. Uh, you yeah. want me to go first? All right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I, well, for me, I, I think uh, the biggest professional fear I had was plucking up the courage to write a book. Absolutely, without a doubt, and it's something been it's something I've procrastinated on for years and years and years and years, and uh, and uh, it, it's because I think for me there's a lot of demons tied up in it, you know, writing bad spelling because I can't because the dyslexia kind of messes up your your spelling, um, and your, your grammar can be a bit off as well. So I, I used to get told off constantly, you know, um, by by. By fabulous friends and colleagues, because I did, you know, I was I was undiagnosed for many years. It was just people thought I was just being careless. So basically, I developed a, um, I, I developed a, 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 sort of a fear of of words that I had to share with anyone. Like I can talk, I've always been a good speaker, but to um, to put it down on paper for some people, they're scared of the permanence of paper. I'm not scared of the permanence of paper. I, I'm I'm scared of of looking like a fool <laughs> uh, because because there'll be some grammar errors or spelling errors or whatever and that's going to diminish um, that that's going to 
that's gonna it's gonna make it very easy for people to be dismissive of me. And uh, yeah, so you know, I, I say this to you because uh, um, you've been quite a uh, someone who's helped me on that journey to overcome that fear. And uh, so we're about halfway through the book now. So with a bit of luck, by the end of this year, we'll be done. Um, so uh, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there as my fear that I definitely overcame professionally. Big deal. Wow, Bibs. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's powerful for you to share that with our, with our group. I would say for me, um, it's a typical one that most people have, and it's the fear of public speaking. So I, in the early part of my career, if I was in a group of two or three people, I'd literally want to throw up if the group got any bigger than that. That's how primal the fear felt. And I only wish someone had told me that that fear goes back 50,000 years when you live in tribes. And then if you spoke out, you could get kicked out of the tribe and die. But the thing is today, we certainly aren't gonna die of getting kicked out of the tribe. We'll die of something, Bips, but not that. And so um, I knew it was going to be critically important for my life to be able to speak in groups. And Bips um, was actually that bad, and it was in the days of Arthur Anderson when I was working for Shashin Shah. So if he's listening to this, he may remember this moment or he may not. But I was asked to do a presentation in front of our group, and you were part of the same group as me. And um, I think there must have been about 20 or 30 people, and we were talking about integration technologies, which I did back then, which most people will never really <laughs> believe, but I did. <laughs> and I had to call in sick. I was that scared. I was throwing up. It was that primal. Wow. And I, um, I was like, this isn't going to work. I need to be able to talk in front of groups. And so I heard about the wonderful organization that is Toastmasters, a plug for Toastmasters here. And I joined up at a daily toast, a weekly Toastmasters club in the city of London. And you turn up and you go along and some people speak great and others are terrible. And um, they have a very structured way of taking you through the practices of speaking. And I was like, oh, you can boil it down into a series of steps. And then it's just repetition and practice and getting better. And that was a huge journey for me. I also put myself on a board where I'd have to speak every week, which was petrifying. And I went for voice coaching. And so I did everything I could to help put myself out there because I realized I wasn't going to die from it. It was just a primal fear. I just needed to repeat. And there was a time when you were in the audience, Vips, and I came across to Atlanta for the company we were working at back then. And I was on stage in front of a thousand mm, people. I remember it well. And I turned to a colleague who was also presenting and I was like, oh, I'm scared, but I'm not petrified it was the normal type yeah. of scared butterflies the type of butterflies which are healthy and um i felt so damn proud and even to this day you know whenever i'm on a zoom call with a bunch of eyes looking at me or in a room or even these podcasts um i have that feeling but it's more energizing now and there's still the butterflies but it's not paralyzing it's probably that energizing probably comes from you knowing that this is something that you've overcome because you couldn't have imagined yourself doing it. Like even this, I mean, this, I don't know, you know, potentially several hundred thousand people could listen to this, right? I don't know how many people will, but potentially many people could listen to this. That, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's a little bit safer than being on stage with, you know, with 5,000 people out there and bright spotlights in your eyes, but, but it, it's still something. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that's got something to do with why you find it so energizing because, because you overcame something that was a demon for so long. Anyway, that's my that's my insight that's, moment. That's, and what a wonderful place yeah, to leave today's insight. today's podcast. <laughs> I'll have to ponder on that, Vibs. It's a fantastic insight. It might be. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. 
So um, any, any closing thoughts for anyone? Um, otherwise, let's call it a wrap, Vicky. Yeah, you know, Bip started at the beginning about our need to continually do and, and especially as young superstar performers and, and not really take the time to pause and reflect deeply on what's required going forward. Um, but I would caution you and, and think about who we are. We are human beings. We're not human doings. And that's a good reminder to reflect on, like, who are we and why, why are we so focused on achieving and outcomes and not that there's anything wrong with that but what if we took some time to go inwards and just sat with ourselves and who are we which many of us find very very uncomfortable but on the other side of that is peace and joy and bliss i can't beat that that's a wrap vicky see you next week <laughs> see you next week Bye. guys be, be fabulous, fabulous everyone